0: Hey guys. So, a quick addendum on the announcement uh, about Band of Brothers. Um, I won't actually be speaking speaking, I'll be interviewing. So, I'm coming with questions, not answers. Uh, We've got a panel of uh, superstars who are going to help us think carefully uh, about marriage. So, um, if you're a man, single, married, single again, you know, whatever. I, I think it'd be, because of what marriage means, it will be, it'll be good for, for all of our consideration. So, hope to have you there uh, next Saturday morning. Um, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke 1. We'll jump off uh, there in just a second. But, you know, as I was thinking about um, starting the Advent series uh, for us this Sunday, i just so appreciative for what we heard last Sunday. Wasn't that a wonderful service of worship i I was so encouraged uh, by the testimonies of noah and tracy and matt and uh, just very very grateful for the way that they opened up their experiences of hard of of deep deep difficulty and yet at the same time while they were honest with the the grief and the hardships that they have faced to also point us to how they have experienced god's good in the midst of their heart i think that's one of the most challenging things in the Christian life, right? We tend to shrink back from hard as though that were the evidence that God is not good, and they were pointing us to the contrary, even in a way that <clears throat> our message this morning uh, will, will help us with a little bit, right? In God's hands, hard and good are not enemies. They are companions. God is doing deep things that we cannot see at times in the, in the particular moments of our, of our heart in which he is Working to our very greatest good, and so that was that was good medicine. I'm very, very thankful for that. Uh, we are opening our Advent series uh, this morning. We've got four Sundays coming up. The theme, as you can see on the screen, is Child of Promise, and 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 basically what we are what we're attempting to do with these four services is to consider how the advent of Jesus uh, is the answer, the fulfillment to to some of the great promises of the Old Testament. Uh, Today, it will be with regard to how Jesus answers and fulfills the promise that was made to Adam. And in the coming Sundays, it will be uh, the promise to Abraham, uh, the fulfillment of the promises to Moses, and then to to David. So that's where we're heading uh, with this. In back of our series, is the conviction, I'm not gonna take the time to read these to you, but the conviction of passages like the ones that are on the screen that indicates that the Old Testament is fundamentally looking forward to its fulfillment uh, in the person and work of Jesus. And then just to touch on, I'll leave those there for a moment, but to touch on Luke 1, uh, we just read it uh, a moment ago in the worship service, and Junior actually preached this passage not too long ago uh, and At the beginning of our Luke series, I, I looked online and I was surprised that it happened way back when we were still doing parking lot church, but that feels like such a long time ago. Anyway, uh, you, you, can, you can look that up if you want a more detailed uh, interpretation of the passage, but Zechariah's prophecy, I'll just point out, you saw in verse uh, 69 how this, the, the Jesus, the for, John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus who will bring about the fulfillment of the promises to to David, right? And then you see down in verse 72 and 73 that that God will remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So there's promises to Abraham. Down in verse 76, uh, Zechariah says of John, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Moses isn't named there, but this is anticipating the way that Jesus will fulfill the Mosaic ministry, the sacrificial system that foreshadows uh, the fulfillment brought in Jesus Christ to the full forgiveness of our sins, and then all the way down in verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace, which doesn't mention Adam, but does remind us that what was forfeited in the garden was peace with God. So Jesus is coming to fulfill these deficits, right, to answer these promises and to restore uh, unto the the, the children of God that which was lost. And so with that in mind, we wanna consider this morning how Jesus fulfills the promise to Adam, how he reverses the curse uh, we will be in Genesis 3 uh, primarily and Matthew 4 primarily today. If you want to go ahead and turn to Genesis 3, get a head start. We'll be there in a second. But Paul summarizes the uh, Adam-Jesus parallel, the Adam-Jesus relationship in this manner in particular from Romans chapter 5. Uh, it's, just a, it's a wonderful passage um, We could spend an ample amount of time on it. I just want to highlight for you down, actually, the summary statement in verse 19, which is the last sentence you see there on your screen. Paul says, as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, of course, the many will be made righteous. I brought some art, <clears throat> it's not mine. This is a guy uh, done by a guy named Chris Powers. Uh, he, he runs a website called fullofeyes.com. He's taking that from Revelation 4. He does what he calls exegetical art. This is his interpretation of Romans 5.19. I'm just gonna leave it there for a moment. I like it a lot. I won't mention him by name again, but I'm gonna use several more artistic images that he has, uh, he has produced. Uh, throughout the message, just because of how helpful I think they are. So you've got the disobedience of Adam answered by the obedience of Jesus. Uh, There's a sense there, right, in which the fundamental need that Jesus answers for us in the place of Adam can be summarized in that word, obedience. Uh, there There are other important things, of course, to say about the life and ministry of Jesus. But obedience nicely incorporates many of the other things that we might want to say. Um, in the first place, in the first place, obedience explains why an incarnation that begins in infancy and moves all the way through adulthood was necessary for our salvation. In other words, um, the death of Jesus, while necessary, is not sufficient by itself to make us right with God. We need obedience applied to our lives. And not just obedience generically, but human obedience. Our, our problem is not, <clears throat> excuse me, in our fallenness, that we have a deficit of divine righteousness. We're not divine beings. We have a deficit of human righteousness. And so there needs to be a life of human obedience across the whole scope of human experience, infancy, childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, adulthood, that can then be applied to us This is the great exchange. Jesus is not just taking something from us, debt at the cross, but giving something to us, his life of humanly achieved obedience to God on our behalf. He is, as Hebrews four tells us, tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. That's what qualifies him as our high priest. So the point of the incarnation is to take on our our human nature specifically so that he can succeed as a human where we have failed and then laid down his life as a sacrificial offering. So, So from cradle to grave, Jesus obeyed perfectly for us, which means that the chief application point of our message this morning, here's the chief application. It's pretty simple. He's got you. That's the chief application of today's passage. And so we just wanna consider two things. There's two, two main movements to the message this morning. First, we wanna consider, and we'll do this in Genesis 3, the disobedience that makes Christ's obedience necessary. Right, that's, that's part one. And then part two is to consider how the obedience of Jesus counteracts the, diso- counteracts the disobedience of Adam and the disobedience of us, okay? So turn with me to Genesis chapter three, we're gonna consider the primal disobedience that makes Christ's obedience necessary. So in the one, on the one hand, in, in the Garden uh, of Eden, as you know, there is, there's just wonderful bounty provided to this original couple. Uh, all the trees in the garden save one are available for their consumption and and this lavish provision is just it's an indication of God's generosity there's just there's goodness everywhere here there everywhere right everywhere they turn there is generosity and there is one tree that is prohibited <clears throat> and the prohibition of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not because that tree or that fruit has magical properties it's because they aren't god God is establishing from the very beginning what we could call the creator-creature distinction. Because you're not God, everything is not available to you. And so the reach for that fruit is not a reach for fruit with magical properties, right? The problem with the reach for that fruit is that it is a reach of discontentment with the status of being a creature. It is a reach that says, I want it all. It's a reach that says, I want to be God. So so God's not being unkind. He's not being mean and prohibiting. He's actually promoting their flourishing because it is not good for the creature to try to be what we are not, namely God. And in that context, beginning in verse 1, we see this serpentine word contest, this serpentine assault on the word of God. I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. twisted logic right? brought in by the serpent uh, in, this, in this context. He first, he questions the word of God in verse one, and then when, he, there's, okay, there's more detail here than we can possibly take the time to go into, but, but basically Eve answers correctly, yes, God did say, uh, we should not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the serpent begins to, it, it's, it's a masterclass in, in sin's deceit. A masterclass in turning the, the knife, twisted logic. What, what he's doing here is he's taking what is deadly and trying to make it look like dessert, okay? May, try to make it look like it's desirable. And in verse five, so in verse four, he directly contradicts God's word, no, you won't die. And in verse five, he suggests an alternative interpretation for why God would prohibit this fruit. Okay, God has said the prohibition serves your welfare. It serves your human flourishing. And Satan says, no, it doesn't. He's trying to keep you down. And the day you eat of it, you'll be like him. And guess what, Eve? He doesn't want anybody else like him. He's trying to keep you under his oppressive thumb. He doesn't want anyone like him. His ways are not best. Here's the, here's the, twisted, the twisted nature of the deception. He holds out the promise that when you eat of it, you'll be like God. Keep in mind, she's already like God in the manner that she was made to be. She's made in his image and likeness. And so, when Satan says, when you eat, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, if she accepts this temptation, she's actually going to become most unlike God, isn't she? Because she will come by the knowledge of evil as one who has experienced it, as one who has participated in it. That's not how God knows good and evil. God knows good and evil as the declarer on the basis of his character of that which is right and that which is wrong. He is not the doer of evil. Adam and Eve, if they eat this fruit, will join the rebellion and know evil experientially. no evil as those who have rebelled against their their maker. And you can almost see at the beginning of verse 6, right, a light bulb flash. Humans have never thought about this tree this way before. They have never thought about God in this manner before. The serpent is inviting the entire upending of the created order. So, so, so God has made the world, right? God rules the world through the mediation of his image bearers. So God, humans, world. And on, on the world over which God has given humans authority to rule and subdue includes the animals. Lions, tigers, bears, fish, birds, snakes, right? So, so the serpent is suggesting that Eve submit to a snake over which she has been given authority and usurp the word of God to whom she was made to submit. It is the inversion of the creation. Human disobedience is a really big, this is not a small thing. So sometimes we read this passage, <clears throat> at least I have, and, and, and wonder Where's Adam? It's a reasonable question. He is conspicuously silent. I used to think that this was the divide and conquer tactic, Satan's waiting for uh, Adam and Eve to be in different parts of the garden. If you look closely, again, at verse 6, once she takes of its fruit and eats, she gives some also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Where was he? He was there. What was he doing? Nothing, which is why we wonder where he was. What should he have been doing? At the risk of becoming known as the snake handling preacher and family, I'm going <clears> to <throat> answer that story with a story, and yes, it involves snakes, or answer that question with a story. Years ago, when our kids were little, uh, I was away on a trip uh, and I brought them back a gift to let them know that I was thinking of them while I was gone, I didn't have time to shop. Uh, so I was left buying a gift at a kiosk at the airport. My, I, was, I was overpaying and uh, what I bought, what I bought, uh, was, you know what I could do is a six foot long stuffed animal, uh, black and blue diamondback rattlesnake. There it, I, I lo- we don't have the rattlesnake anymore. It's been so well loved, it's gone. Our kids were little back then, the thing that amuses me about this picture that has nothing to do with the sermon is that ancient piece of uh, fitness equipment in the background that's doing nothing but holding my laundry, so <laughs> there's that. Uh, but Eli, the, uh, the tallest of, of our three at that time, he's holding this, this, uh, this gift, this snake. Uh, and so, so I brought it back to them, and then it wasn't too long after that, we were doing family devotionals, And uh, we were reading through a children's story Bible and we had gotten back to the beginning and we were at the story of the serpent deceiving uh, Adam and Eve. And and, and I appreciated the art because in the picture, the serpent's talking to Eve and Adam's standing alongside in the picture. And my kids are really, really young and I just want to see, like, okay, we've done this a few times, what have you picked up? So I asked them the question. What should Adam have done? And the littlest one... um, She didn't have a whole lot of idea what was going on. She just kind of followed the older two. The older two exchanged a knowing look. They didn't answer with words. They waddled over to the toy box. They lifted the lid. They pulled out this black and blue diamondback rattlesnake. They went to the fireplace, and they started smashing that thing's head on the fireplace and jumping up and down on its head. And my heart's turning cartwheels. Yes, yes, right? Mom and dad got little tears leaking down. Uh, This is Jesus in Genesis. You don't know how much you have gotten. This is so important. Adam should have crushed skulls for his bride. He was the one who originally received the prohibition from God, and when Adam existed and Eve did not, and Eve is aware of it because Adam has relayed it to her and because Adam stood by quietly and did not crush skulls for his bride. Another Adam would have to come at another time and at great personal cost. Crushed skulls for the sake of his bride. You're in Genesis 3, if you just scan over to verse 17 for a moment. In the part of the passage where God is pronouncing curse on snake, woman, and man, in verse 17, he gives his curse to Adam. And there's two reasons for the curse. One is, the second one, which is obvious, is because you ate of the tree of which I commanded you, that you shall not eat of it. The first reason for the curse is curious he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. That is an easily misunderstood statement, so let's make sure we're clear. God is not saying you are cursed because you listened to your wife and you should never listen to your wife. It's not what he's saying. He's saying on this occasion, you were listening when you should have been leaping into the fray. We'll make no mistake, friends. Uh, Adam and Eve's story is our story as well, right? Both as the Romans 5 passage uh, clarifies in the way that Adam represents us in the Garden of Eden, but it's true in our own sin and disobedience. Every sin we ever commit, violates the creator-creature distinction. Every sin turns on the hinge of distrusting God's word, doubting his character, convincing ourselves that his ways aren't best, that we are better served if we would go our own way. That's the sin beneath every sin. But into that profoundly deep trouble, the promise of remarkable good news is given. We see this in Genesis 3:15. It was read for us a moment ago. I'm going to reread it. This word is actually pronounced to the serpent. God says at the beginning of verse <clears throat> uh, 15 I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is often termed or understood to be the very first preaching of the gospel. It is a promise that will unfold millennia in the making. It's, it's interesting. If you read the start of Genesis 4, you can almost sense that Eve kind of anticipates, okay, you know, she conceives Cain. Here's the answer to the promise. It's going to take way longer than that, right? But there's a promise that one of her line will crush the serpent's head even at the cost of absorbing the serpent's blow, here's another full of eyes image for you. There's a promise that there will one day be an obedient son. Turn to Matthew chapter four, I'll leave that there for a second. Art's kind of better than the sermon, isn't it? <laughs> it's the risk of uh, using good pictures like that. <clears throat> Uh, so ha- so, so how, do- how does Christ overcome Adam's disobedience in ours? And, and so um, Romans 5, we've already seen, uh, Hebrews 5, Philippians 2, wonderful passages that declare the obedience of, of, of Christ. And, and, and we could do wonderful work by expounding those. What I wanna do uh, instead, however, is give most of the remainder of our attention to Matthew chapter 4 uh, because of the way that it narrates or displays some of the aspects of Christ's obedience while he faces his own temptation in the wilderness. We should be clear. What's happening in the wilderness temptation with Jesus, it's a well-known story, probably familiar to most of you. What's happening there is an intentional reenactment of the temptation that took place in the Garden of Eden. Here's the difference. In the Garden of Eden, there was opulence and plenty. In the wilderness, there was devastation and hunger. Okay? And then the outcomes are different as well, failure and, and obedience. It's intentional reenactment. Again, so many things that I wish we had time to say. It's actually, it's a reenactment of Israel too. Israel is a kind of son to the Lord. Everything that Jesus says in this passage is quoting from Deuteronomy six or eight. 40 days in the wilderness for Jesus, 40 years in the wilderness for Israel, right? He, he, he's, he's doing what Adam ought to have done, what all of us ought to have done, as well as what Israel ought to have done, but just, just pick it up in, uh, <clears throat> right at the end of chapter three actually, verse 17. Uh, Jesus has been baptized, he's coming up out of the water and hears this voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Genesis 3.15 promises there will be an obedient son. The announcement of Jesus, his public consecration to ministry, the Father says, here is the beloved son and then he sends him, right, the spirit leads him, chapter four, verse one, uh, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He goes about his work, his sonship is announced and he goes now to confront his, the true enemies of the people of God. It's not the Roman forces occupying Jerusalem. He heads in the direction instead of the wilderness, right, to to do battle, to do combat with that ancient dragon. And he goes, he's led by the Spirit to be tempted. So, so it's, it's not for the purpose of avoiding temptation, right? He has to get to the cross having conquered temptation with faithful obedience to God. Not bypassing it, but gaining victory over it. And then, and then we come to these three very famous temptations by the devil. They are not the only expressions of, of Satan's temptation of Jesus either in this time or in the, in the time following it. Uh, but, but these three are, are, are probably climactic. They're, they're, they're expressions of the devil's best shot, right, in some ways. And he's trying to get Jesus, the second Adam, to take the same bait that the first Adam and his wife Eve did. So the first temptation, right, verse two tells us classic understatement. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry It's not a supernatural fast. He's he's taken on a human nature. He's got a human digestive system. Humans don't eat long enough. They will starve and die. He's hungry. He's weakened. He's at the point of starvation. And then the serpent says in verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Super quick here. There's a way to take that statement. If you're the son of God, uh, there's a way to take that statement. In, 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 in a sense that maybe like, Satan isn't sure. I, I don't know if you're the son of God, so do a miracle and prove it. We could read it that way. That would not be the right way to read it. There, there are people in this room more expert than I in the grammar of the passage, but there are, there, there are ways that, that conditional sentences are formed in the Greek here. And, 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 and essentially, the way that it's formed here the statement, if you are the Son of God, is actually presumed to be true. So so the point of contact with the temptation, this is the same in the second temptation as well, the point of contact is not, I'm not sure you're the Son of God, prove it. It's you're the Son of God for crying out loud. You have the very prerogatives of God. Why in the world are you starving in the wilderness? Can Jesus turn stones to bread? Of course, of course. But here's the point. He is living in dependent obedience on the Father's will. The serpent is calling into question, trying to cast doubt on the nature of his sonship relationship. He's suggesting to Jesus, this hard can't possibly be good. What kind of father would allow this to happen? Why are you waiting on him to tell you to eat? <clears throat> what does Jesus say? He responds in verse 4, quoting from Deuteronomy 8, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You remember the word contest from back in Genesis 3? Jesus faces the same contest. He answers the question by saying effectively, there is a food that is more important to live by than the food that fills the belly. He says living by the word of God is his food and drink. Now in this, he is definitively obeying on our behalf, isn't he? But he's also showing us the way to fuel our own clear-sighted obedience of God. You want to survive the word contest, we've got to be rooted in the word. Second temptation occurs in verses 5 and 6. Uh, Satan appeals to Jesus to throw himself down from the temple. We might think, like, why would that even have an appeal? It has to do with his messianic identity. Verse 5, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. He's quoting Psalm 91 now and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." So he's, he's, <coughs> he's offering to, to twist scripture, right? Uh, with the twisting of Psalm 91, like okay, you need some scriptural justification, you need some word of God rationale, Here, here's some, here's some. He uses the same uh, if expression, if you're the son of, and, and once again, the point is not, hey, I, don't, I still don't know, but if you jump and angels catch you, I'll, I'll buy what you're selling. That's not, not what he's saying. The point of contact uh, here, similar to the previous one, you're the son of God. Don't you of all people, don't you of all people want to know that you still enjoy the Father's favor? He's basically left you for dead out here. Don't you want the following and the exaltation that would result from a public angelic intervention? You can have what you want, Jesus, you're just gonna have to force his hand. He is stingy. He's not for you. You gotta look out for number one. But you know he's made this promise. And he must be faithful to his promises. Because you're the son of God, if you jump, they will catch you. They have to. And then you'll know. Uh, How does Jesus respond to to this temptation, we see it in verse seven, quoting Deuteronomy chapter six. It's very succinct. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, Jesus refuses to go along with the manipulation of God's word. Psalm 91 has nothing to do with reckless gestures done to see if God will protect you. Jesus says the proper mode for the child of God, in this case, the capital S, Son of God, to relating to the Father is by trusting and not by testing. Trusting his character and obeying his word even when God's pathways are hard. Temptation number three occurs in verses eight and nine. I think the devil is particularly twisting the dagger here. He says in this occasion, in this instance, he takes him to a very high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, verse nine, he said to him, all these I will give Uh, give you if you will fall down and worship me. Here's the point of contact. Jesus, this hard can't possibly be good. You're the son of God. You know what's in store. You know where this road ends. You know the path by which the father will require you to walk to win the nations. Footnote, Satan's not omniscient, but he's been watching for a long time. He's, he's aware of passages, for example, like Isaiah 53. So he suggests an alternative. He can't possibly be for you. I'll give you what you came for and you won't have to face what you dread. Does Jesus dread facing the wrath of God for sins he didn't commit? I think if we examine his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, we would have to conclude that he absolutely does. Now, again, Satan is a deceiver, and, and, and it's not to say that in actual fact his authority over the nation supersedes God's, but he is called, in, like for example, 2 Corinthians 4, little g, God of this world, who has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, and, and so he tries to tempt Jesus by offering the very thing that Jesus came for. He came for the nations, and he, and, and he suggests he has the ability to offer that without the cost of the cross. Look out for number one, Jesus. He surely isn't. His response in verse 10 <clears throat> Then Jesus said to him, be gone Satan, for it is written, quoting Deuteronomy 6 again, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In other words, go back to the pit. There is only one way to win the nations and that is the path of obedience to the Father. You remember how he said Adam and Eve's disobedience upended the order of the universe? Here is one of the moments in which Jesus is climactically refusing to take the same bait. He is doing what Adam ought to have done and what everyone after Adam ought to have done, Abraham, right? Moses, David, you, me. Check this out in verse 11. It's, it's, you, you could blow right past this, okay? Verse 11, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Him, you remember temptation number two? Satan says, hey, you know what? The sign that you still have the favor of God, that he, hasn't, that he hasn't left you to rot in the wilderness is if some angels show up. Well, now he passes the test by trust and obedience rather than by testing and manipulating the father. And who shows up? The angels. They are, in fact, the sign of God's favor. He is pleased with the obedience of this son. Satan leaves for a time... Um, This is not the last time he brings to bear the full weight of his tempting uh, forces on the person of Jesus. I I suspect there are probably other instances in the life of Jesus that maybe aren't recorded in Scripture that we're not aware of, but I can show you two that are. We'll just stay in Matthew's Gospel for the sake of time. Flip over to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. This is right after uh, Peter's remarkable confession that uh, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're going to pick this up in verse 21, Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Isn't that interesting? It's the voice box of Peter. But on the voice box of Peter, Jesus hears the logic of Satan. You don't have to go. How could he possibly make you? You know that heart isn't good. And Jesus rebukes him for thinking not only in a a human fashion, but an ungodly fashion. Flip over to Matthew chapter 27. I suspect there's, there's probability to this kind of satanic pressure on Jesus as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. We don't know that for a fact. We do see it in Matthew 27. Here, Jesus, we're gonna pick it up. Jesus is now on the cross. And we're going to pick it up with the mocking that is taking place of Jesus in verse 39. Uh, Listen to these expressions, see if they sound familiar. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. Calling the sonship of Jesus into question, right? Actually, the, the, the grammar of the statement, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross, it's the same as Matthew 4. In other words, it's the voice of the mockers, it's the logic of the pit, You of all people, Jesus, don't deserve to be on that cross. How could he come down? His ways aren't best. Now, of all times, you need to look out for number one. Uh, Can Jesus Jesus deliver himself in this moment? When When he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, he rebukes his disciples and says, if I wished... And I prayed the Father would send 12 legions of angels to deliver me right now. It would only take a word. There is no force in the universe that can bind Jesus to that cross against his will. So he stays on this cross not as a hapless victim but as one who is clinging to the cross, drinking the cup of God's judgment to the very last drop. Because while Jesus can save himself, what he cannot do is save himself and save you and me. In other words, not coming down from the cross is the climax of Jesus' obedience. It is the hardest test and it comes last of all. It is the ultimate expression of not looking to his own interests, which is why Philippians 2.8 says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death not, not obedient to death, but obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This was uh, one of Mark Will's favorite images. Um, he, you, I used it years ago in a, in a, in a sermon and then, and then every time I saw him since. Uh, this, this one just stuck with him and it's a good one, right? To stick with you. He asked about it every time. When are you gonna show that again? I, can't, I, I, have, I don't have an artistic bone in my body, but I appreciate it. So, uh, And so even as the serpent bruises his heel, we've seen this one before, he gives to the serpent his death blow. So friends, this morning's message boils down completely to the incredibly good news that because of Jesus' perfect obedience in life and death, he's got you. And because he does, you can be confident that he's redeeming all of your heart for good. If God is redeeming that hard for good in the person of his son, you can be confident that he's redeeming all of your heart for good as well. Uh, preparation for this sermon actually reminded me of a line in the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. There's a line in there that's, that's talking about the sufficiency of scripture. Uh, and the line says, What more can he say than to you he hath said? which is very interesting, right? I mean, there there are a lot of things that we might wish God would address about our lives that are not in in Scripture, but but the point of that line is to say that everything you must know is here. Everything you must know about being human, about being fallen, about being reconciled, about being redeemed, about being remade into the likeness of Christ, everything you must know, maybe not everything you want to know, but everything you must know is here. made me think that, I mean, you know, Walt likes to adjust hymns for different purposes, and and I appreciate when, they're always very well done. I could never do what he does. Um, But it did make me think we could adjust that line, and I think it would be appropriate if we adjusted it to say something like the following, what more can he do than for you he hath done? There are all kinds of things we may wish that he would do on our timetable Questions of cancer and heart transplants and anxiety and depression and like, do something about that. It's reasonable to pray and wonder and ask and grieve. What's our message telling us this morning? Everything that you need has already been done. Doesn't mean you won't grieve. Doesn't mean you won't suffer, but it does mean that if you're in Christ, you couldn't possibly be more secure. If you have received his obedient representation by faith, nothing can separate you from that love. If you haven't ever done that, I urge you to make today the day. Talk to someone before you leave. Ask about what it looks like to receive the righteous obedience of Christ by faith. Probably anybody sitting next to you would be happy to tell you, explain, to answer questions, and to pray with you. So I've got uh, two, two questions, two final questions. Basically, these are just food for thought as we go. Maybe maybe for consideration at, uh, at Grace Groups if you gather later on today or later on this week. But there's two questions for everybody. Here's the first one. What would What would resting with more assurance in Christ's perfect righteousness look like for you? What would resting with more assurance in Christ's perfect righteousness look like for you? In other words, where are the, where are the places in your, the, the disturbances in your soul, where, where rubbing the balm of Christ's perfect obedience, right, rubbing that a little bit deeper into the taste buds of your soul, where, where, where would that uh, uh, suffice to, to, to encourage you with a little more assurance? And how securely he has you. Okay, that's, so that's one. Here's here's the other one. Uh, how might how might gratitude gratitude for his perfect obedience, right, all the way up until the point of death itself, how might gratitude for his perfect obedience stir up in us the worship of a response of obedience to him? So, 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 so gratitude for his perfect obedience, how would that stir up fuel and encourage our increasing walk of obedience to him this week? Rest on the one hand, increasing obedience in response to his on the other hand. Let's pray to those ends. Father, we are so grateful for the mercy afforded to us in the life and work of Jesus Christ. The disobedience of Adam and Eve and us as well inverts the universe, turns it on its head. We're in more dire straits than we might regularly want to recognize. And so to the degree that the depths of our sin are mind-numbingly difficult to plumb, so too, is the righteous life of Christ more glorious than we could possibly imagine? Jesus, we give you praise for all that you faced, for the way that you leaned in to an abundance of hard with confidence in God's good for you, and by extension to us. So Lord, would you help us uh, this week to rest more confidently in your obedient representation of us and to live with increasing obedience as a response to those mercies. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.